Welcome to the Seahawks Forever podcast, hosted by longtime Northwest sports journalist Dan Viennes. News, reaction, and opinion. In-depth analysis on everything Seahawks. And now, here's your host, Dan Viennes. Welcome back to the show, everybody. It has been a long time. 24 hours or so. <laughs> since Rob Staten joined me on the show yesterday, but back again. Um, this one's going to be a fun one. Um, welcome to the show. I am Dan. Uh, before we get started, if you're watching the video version, please hit that like button and subscribe to the channel. That way you'll always be notified of new episodes and live streams. Uh, subscriptions jumped up to 886 after the last episode. That uh, 900 marker is in view that would be the next step to the big goal of a thousand subs it's the best way to support the channel and i appreciate it greatly coming up i'm going to answer your questions that you've been submitting to me over the last week uh, mostly through twitter but i also uh, had one of you use the voice message feature on the website if you're interested in that if you can see on the screen here just right up there seahawks hyphenforever.com. Uh, you'll see a little microphone icon in the lower right-hand corner of the screen. Uh, you can click on that and just record into your phone, ask me a question that way. You can do that anytime, actually, and I can actually insert it into the show. So the, um, that'll be coming up as well. And the easiest way to subscribe, if you can't find it, just here, down there in that lower right-hand corner as you're looking at it, just click on that, subscribe to the channel. And then stick around until the end, because after I answer questions, I'm going to tell you the best thing I have seen so far at Seahawks OTAs. Little piece of video that got me really excited and I think it'll get you excited as well. I'm going to get right into the questions. Um, and the way I like to do these is uh, as you've submitted them on Twitter, I just kind of like them. I don't kind of like them. I do like them. And then uh, when I'm ready to put the show together, I go back and compile them and I don't do a lot of advance thinking about it. I like this to be as off the cuff as possible. Um, and one of these days when we get those subscriptions up high enough, when there's enough viewers, right? When I know there's going to be an, an ample enough audience on a live stream, we'll do a live Q and A. I think that'll be a lot of fun. The engagement with you guys is, I think the best part about doing this for me. Uh, this is a passion project for me. It's a side gig. It's a hobby. It's just something that I love. And when I first started doing a podcast, oh, back in 2016, if any of you ever have been with me that long, if you listen to The Dan Cave, uh, I used to talk about a lot more things in the Seahawks. You should involve a lot of Mariner talk in there as well. But I did it with the, the, the idea that nobody might listen, ever. And so the decision to do it was I was doing it for me. I just wanted to, to do something that I loved and that I was passionate about. Put it out in the universe, and if anyone liked it, uh, that would be a bonus. And the support that has been growing for this channel and this show over the last couple of months has been really inspiring, just makes me want to do more. Um, and so thanks for joining me because I love the interaction, the engagement. I, I work in a very social environment, and sometimes when I uh, have time off, being social is the last thing that I want. I don't want to go out in public. I just want to sit in my cave, as it were. Um, and so a lot of the connection that I get with you guys through the Twitter community in this channel uh, kind of keeps me going. I love it. So thank you. Um, but I'm, I'm going to try to do this as off the cuff as I can. Uh, let's get right into it. I'm going to start with, uh, this comes in from Hipster Bernie 16 
on Twitter. Uh, and this is something that I tackled recently on the show with Dana O'Gorman when she shared her thoughts uh, being able to, to be live at the draft in Kansas City this year. Could Seattleites organize and get a draft at Key Arena? Okay, first of all, Climate Pledge now, but I, I appreciate hanging on, to the, hanging on to the memories of the past. Um, this is something Dana and I talked about, it, and her being there at the event gave us some insight into what is required. Um, there was a little bit of excitement a couple of weeks ago when the NFL's official Twitter page released a graphic that showed logos in a number of NFL cities around the country, and uh, under the caption of, these are cities that have hosted a major NFL event since 2014, and that was... It was a very vague graphic at the time, but it got some of us excited because the assumption was, the, the inference was that we're talking about the draft or the Super Bowl or the Pro Bowl, something like that. It was suggested to me that, well, the Seahawks had a victory parade in 2014 after the Super I don't, that's organized locally. So I got excited for a moment through some speculation out on Twitter that maybe, that maybe we were in the running for a draft or had been approved and it hadn't been announced yet. Um, a couple of years ago when the NFL made it clear that they were going to, they were going to move this around, that it had become an event that was bigger than Radio City Music Hall could justify. Um, more than half the teams in the NFL place bids. There have been some reports that Seattle has been in on that process, but nothing really concrete. Could it work? Could it happen? Absolutely. Yes. And here's why I think so. First of all, the NFL has now approved two northern United States draft sites over the next few years. I think 2024 is in Detroit, and then they just approved one in Green Bay. So weather shouldn't be a consideration. Much of the draft is going to be held outside, but you can build covers. And honestly, that weekend this year of the draft, the weather would have been perfect here. It was absolutely ideal. I remember because if you remember my the stuff I was doing during the draft, I was sick. Had a really bad sinus infection. One that I'm still trying to kick, by the way. Uh, eventually, the voice will return to normal. I finally got some antibiotics. Should be working through this thing soon. But it was absolutely gorgeous. It would have been perfect. Dana talked about the need to build the infrastructure to house the draft. And not just where the draft itself is, is held. The theater, the stage, and the theater-style seating, and, and, and all of that. But also all the events, um, you know, they build a lot of things for kids and, and a lot of historical perspective things, a lot of activities. Uh, absolutely. And I think Soto would be the area, not climate pledge. Although I think we're out to two, 2026. Now two bids have been submitted to remodel the old Memorial stadium. If that were done, I think Seattle Center could absolutely, and and would be better than Soto. In Soto, you could use T-Mobile Park, roof open or closed, depending on the weather. That's perfect. You can obviously use Lumen Field. There's the convention center in between the two. Plenty of space out in, on Occidental Way and, and all of that that you could do some outdoor things. And in the parking lot, obviously the north lot, and make use of that uh, as the networks do when they do Monday Night Football, Sunday Night Football, things like that. So if you held it today, I think you could do it in Soto. But when Memorial Stadium is remodeled, I think Seattle Center would be the place to do it. Obviously, all the history there. Uh, the big courtyard in the middle with the fountain, the Space Needle, 
all of that. Uh, I think you have two choices. You have to decide on one and make your best pitch. But uh, I'd be shocked if this if the city of Seattle, if they put forth a legitimate pitch, isn't awarded uh, a draft sometime in the next 10 years. Uh, from Seahawk Nerd at Twitter. Uh, who do you think has a better chance of getting considerable snaps in 2023? D. Eskridge or Derek Young? Is it Derek Young or Derek Young? Someone clue me in on that. D. Eskridge, second round pick in 2020. Derek Young, seventh round pick last year. Both small school guys. A lot was expected out of Eskridge. A lot of expectations placed on him, not just because he was a second round pick, but he, he will forever be measured to most Seahawk fans in relation to the career arc that Creed Humphrey, the center in Kansas City, is on, because that was seen as a massive need for the Seahawks and uh, would have been a more sensible pick there in the second round. And Creed Humphrey has turned into, uh, well, immediately became one of the best centers in the AFC, if not the NFL. Um, and Eskridge has struggled with injuries, just hasn't gotten on the field. He's kind of become the new Rashad Penny or CJ Procise where you can see the upside. Uh, loved him coming out of the Senior Bowl. Really turned some heads there. Um, really dynamic. Shane Waldron had a lot of things in mind for him. Fly sweeps, things like that. You can get creative with him. And then Derek Young is much different build, but similar in the versatility. 6'2", really stoutly built, almost built more like a, a running back. And near the end of last year was getting some snaps and was being used in a very creative way by Shane Waldron, including coming out of the backfield as a fullback and not just as a, as a figurehead, as a decoy, lining him up as a fullback and then motioning him out and running him in a pass pattern. He was doing some blocking out of that position and really willingly and quite capably. It'll be interesting to see in training camp this year, preseason and to open the season, if that's still part of the plan, because I think, I think there's something there. He's a he's a bigger player. He's had some trouble catching the football. He needs to be more consistent in that area. But I think there's more upside there. I think D. Eskridge is a guy that we've just we've seen his skill set before. I'm not so sure Penny Hart and the skill set he provided the Seahawks the last four years before he moved on this offseason wasn't that much less dynamic than what D. Eskridge can do. He's a smaller guy. He's going to work exclusively out of the slot. And now you've got Jackson Smith and Jigba there. Um, I think that's going to cut in dramatically to Eskridge's role and potential role. Um, we've heard how good Eskridge has looked so far in OTAs. We've heard Geno Smith uh, heaping praise on him. I just don't know if the opportunity is there, no matter how well he plays. And I think Derek Young, because of that versatility he offers and how you can use him out of the backfield, and because of that size, his ability to be better on, on contested catches, um, I think at the end of the year, and, and plus, look, at the end of the day, and I've, I've fallen victim to this too, um, some guys just have to prove that they can stay healthy. Uh, I always stood up for Rashad Penny and uh, against people and pushed back against people that said he was injury prone and he was fragile because his injuries were legitimate physical injuries that are fluky in nature, not the sign that you're 
not up to the task of playing NFL football. We're talking ACL tears and broken legs and broken ankles. That's not being fragile. Being fragile is CJ Procise, where every time he gets back on the field again, he pulls a hamstring or a groin or a core muscle. Um, those seem to be the kind of injuries that Eskridge hasn't been able to escape. And he needs to prove that too. I think at the end of the year, Derek Young gets more snaps than D. Eskridge. This one turned in by pros underscore Etta uh, at Twitter. With the NFL rule changes to punts this year, what's the likelihood that a receiver like Eskridge makes a roster spot that would typically go to a special team spot in a year where punts would be expected to be returned? Um, I absolutely think that this is going to affect how teams um, put their roster together. The new kickoff rule, even, where you can fair catch the ball inside the 25 and it goes out to the 25. I think, uh, who was it? Godwin Igwebuike. Did I say that right? Did I nail that off the top of my head? Who came up at the end of last year, uh, was listed as a running back, was never going to contribute as a running back on the field, was strictly there to return kicks. It's been something the Seahawks have lacked in the last few years, a dynamic kick and punt returner. Uh, he really added a spark at the end of last year with his return ability and, um, and gave the Seahawks something they didn't have. And it really keyed some drives there in some important games. But to burn a roster spot for a player like that that's not going to contribute in any other way, um, when now you can fair catch a ball if it's at the 20 and just get it at the 25, I do think teams are looking for every opportunity they can to get the most out of that roster and use those spots in a more specialized way, either to add a sixth receiver, someone that can be versatile, play roles in packages, like a Derek Young. Right, someone that might be a little more limited. Um, I do think that's an opportunity they'll take. I think it's one of the reasons teams don't carry three quarterbacks on the roster anymore. They would rather carry that extra corner or DB so they can play some different packages or just to protect themselves in the case of injury. I do think it'll have an impact. I think we're going to see it. I think the days of guys getting drafted because of their return ability, if they're not seen as an every down player, those players might lose some value now coming out in the draft as well. Uh, I don't think we'll ever see a Devin Hester again. I don't think we'll ever see an elite uh, returner uh, make his name on doing that and that alone. I think those days are long behind us. It's unfortunate, but I think it's the reality we need to accept. And I've even said it on Twitter that, look, if this is how it's going to be, and if if we go into this next season and we see that most teams are taking advantage of that new kickoff rule and they're, and they're fair catching the football, then just take the kickoff out of the game. Start at the 25 each time, evens things out for both teams and allows teams to use that, that roster spot or two on something else. Uh, D Hodges, D-H-O-D-G-S on Twitter asks, should Zach Charbonnet have actually been the pick at number five? When I saw this question, I thought, okay, first thing I need to do is go back and look at the draft and see if there's guys behind him I would have rather had. But then I thought about it, and that's not the way I'm going to answer this question. Um, we've talked a lot about the draft since then. We've broken it down in just about every conceivable way, and I've addressed, certainly, as everyone else has, the idea of positional value in the draft and where running back falls into that. And the Seahawks have taken a lot of heat because they've taken running backs in, in the second round the last two drafts. After reading John Boyle's piece where he was in the war room, detailing the process and the way things went down in the first and second round for the Seahawks and how determined they were and the conviction that they had in sticking to their board regardless of positional need 
then absolutely, unequivocally, 100%, yes, it's my opinion that Zach Charbonnet was the right pick uh, at 53, 57. Um, because the Seahawks had a process and a plan and a conviction in how they were going to do things and a conviction on their grade on this player, and they stuck to it. And I think over the long term, that is the best way to build a roster. The late, great John Clayton used to always say, the NFL is a talent acquisition league. The teams that amass the most talent usually win, regardless of coaching issues or anything else, injuries even. Take the best players, and over the course, over the, the bigger picture and the longer sample size, you're going to be more successful. They thought about taking Zach Charbonnet and had him rated high enough that they were considering him at 37 if Derek Hall had been gone. They didn't think he would still be there at the end of the second round. They did talk openly about how they did have a couple of other defensive linemen that they were considering that got sniped right before they picked. I think uh, Yaya Diaby was taking one pick before, if I'm not mistaken. He might have been the guy. Once that was the case, and they're on the clock, and they're looking at their board, and this one player stands far and above everyone else on their grading scale, you cannot overthink that. Because if they don't take him, what would the reason have been? Well, people aren't going to like this pick. Do you want your general manager of your team making picks based on what he thinks Twitter's going to think? Or how the public's going to react? I don't. I also think he's a damn good player. And I think in the long run, he actually might be a more valuable running back than Ken Walker. Just because bigger build, I think he can maybe take a little more punishment. Maybe get some of those physical yards. I think that tandem, um, gosh, who was it on the show? Was it Griffin that compared it to the uh, Jonathan Taylor? And, uh, oh, shoot, now off the top of my head, I'm, um, the the combo in Carolina a few years ago. Now I can't remember the, the second guy. But Charbonnet, the more physical between the tackles guy, breaking tackles. Kenneth Walker, the more dynamic cutback runner. Um, and Kenny McIntosh added to that mix. I cannot wait to see what that running back group looks like and how Shane Waldron uses them at his disposal. Next question from my favorite, my number one Canadian fan, Jenny, up in the Great White North, Savage Cookie. Uh, which undrafted free agents will make the 53-man roster? I'm going to have to defer on this one. Um, I'm going to have to see more. It's hard to tell. I thought just looking at the list and looking at these guys' backgrounds that Robert Cooper, the nose tackle out of Florida State, would be the favorite to make the roster out of this group. Um, he was something that they kind of lacked, 330 pounds, uh, a, a blue-collar, workman-like, lunch-pail-carrying guy, Rob Rang, uh, really praised him um, because he kind of fought through a bunch of stuff at Florida State. Like there was a lot of things that weren't going well in that program, but he just showed up every single time and he was consistent and clogging in the middle. And then he was released after the first couple of days of OTAs. Um, had to have been an injury involved because uh, I think they even gave him a little bit of a bigger bonus. Um, but let me, let me just say this. There's some receivers that have an opportunity. I want to get a better look at them. Uh, Matt Landers is one. Um, just because of the athletic upside, and he's tall and long and explosive. A couple of the tight ends, I think, are interesting. But to make the 53-man roster, that's tough. Uh, that's going to be tough. Um, this year more than ever because they have 
They've drafted 19 players in the last two drafts. And 18 of them, as I mentioned yesterday on the show, are likely to make this roster. It's a young roster as it is. And then they signed 28 undrafted free agents. And I think the allure was to a lot of those guys, their agents probably steered them towards the Seahawks um, because there was opportunity there at the bottom of the roster. I'm going to need to see a little more though. Um, one other name I'll mention though that I'll be looking closely at is Jonah Tavai. Really undersized interior defensive tackle, sort of like Miles Adams was coming out of uh, coming out of college as an undrafted free agent. He's gotten bigger, but Tavai short arms, short in stature, light, but really dynamic as a pass rusher inside. And uh, and I do th I think they gave him a bigger bonus. Uh, he's a guy. If I had to name two. Um, it would be Tavai and maybe Landers if there's an opportunity at the back of the at the back of the roster for that wide receiver room. It would probably have to require the Seahawks carrying six receivers in that case, though, which kind of ties in with some of the earlier questions. This is all kind of coming together in a little little bit of a uh, soup, isn't it? R T Solari, R T S O L A R I, ask a uh, very simple one. Uh, will you be going to training camp and then reporting on your observations? So I am not credentialed at this point. Um, and so I don't get to go actually to the VMAC and watch on the field. Um, you know, the guys you want to be following for that, Bob Condota, the Seattle Times, Greg Bell, uh, Michael Sean Duger from The Athletic, Greg Bell from The Tribune, Corbin Smith, obviously, who you've seen on the show a lot. Those guys, they're there. They're on the ground floor. They get to go and see those practices. I will attend a couple this year on my own. The problem is, and over the years I've gone to less of these, fewer of these, it's just such a, a bear to get there. You know, having to go to the landing, wait for a bus, wait in line, check in, take the bus there, and then have to be at the mercy of the bus coming back. Um, that's unfortunate. I, I wish they had more parking and you could just drive there on your own. Um, but I will say this, with the focus this season being so much on taking this show to the next level and really giving you the best content I can get, give you 365 days a year. And especially as we get closer to the season, Seahawks have always done a really nice job of live streaming their practices on their website. They show you quite a bit enough that you can glean some things. I will, um, I will be more committed this year than ever to watching those practices and reacting to them and the things that I'm seeing in those on the show. So that's how I'm going to approach training camp this year. All right, we're going to finish up with this. And I told you that someone took advantage for the first time of the voice message feature. And again, if you go to Seahawks-forever.com, you'll see the microphone icon in the bottom corner of the screen. You can just click on that, record a question to me at any time. It'll notify me and I can record it just like this and play it on the show. So this is, I got to give a shout out to Shane from Australia, Shane Fisher. He is one of my favorite uh, fans of the show. He uh, sent me a, a very flattering uh, message, a very long message through DMs a few weeks ago about his journey uh, living in Australia, but becoming a fan of American football, of the NFL, and specifically how he became a Seahawks fan and also voiced his appreciation for what he's been able to learn from watching my show. It means a ton to me, Shane. Um, and this is Shane asking two questions. So I'm going to play them both here in audio form, and then I will take them on and answer them. This is uh, Shane Fisher from Australia. Hey, Dan, it's Shane from Australia here. Uh, absolutely love the show. A couple questions I got to 
how similar are Seattle's first two picks with Witherspoon and Jackson Smith and Jigger to the Jets' first two picks and Gardner and Wilson last year? And can we expect or hope for a similar outcome with two rookies of the year? Another question I got is, how will the addition of Jackson Smith and Jigba affect the ratio of targets to wide receiver versus tight ends in the coming season? What will be the biggest differences to the viewers at home? Again, thank you, Shane. A couple of great questions there. It's funny, until he had said this, I hadn't thought of the parallel between what the Seahawks did in the draft this year and what the Jets did last year. And of course, the Jets had three first-round picks last year. But they take Sauce Gardner at... Was it at three? Um, and they take Garrett Wilson out of Ohio State. So the parallels are uncanny. You take a corner, a corner high with your first pick, and then you take an Ohio State wide receiver a little bit later. Of course, Garrett Wilson and Jackson Smith and Jigba played together um, two years ago, and uh, Sauce had the famous battle for rookie of the year last year with Tariq Woolen. And, you know, look, I'm a homer as much as as anyone. I think Tariq Wollin has a lot of all-pro selections in his future. Um, many of you wrote off the Sauce Gardner selection as Rookie of the Year last year in New York uh, as, a, as a big market East Coast bias thing. Um, I can't argue against his selection. They were both terrific last year. Both would have been worthy of the, of the award. I can completely see. When you look at a lot of the analytics and the advanced statistics, uh, Sauce had a great year. He had a great year. Um, and I think he finished a little stronger than Tariq did. Tariq had some struggles down the stretch, and that might have cost him the award. Can either of those guys win Rookie of the Year? Absolutely. Of course they could. Especially because I think there's been so much attention paid to the Seahawks and how they've drafted the last couple of years, I think this year's draft class could benefit from last year's draft class because you see it nationwide now. A lot of these analysts are just so pro Seahawk and what they're doing now that I think the focus is going to be a little bit more on them. It's not going to come as much of a surprise. Um, so yeah, if Devin Witherspoon comes out and looks like a rookie the same way he looked at Illinois, and he's not just locking guys down and putting up, you know, good PFF pass coverage grades, but he's also coming up and hitting people the way that he hits guys. That's going to make an impact. That's going to turn heads. I think he's a guy that will make enough flashy plays to be in the conversation. Jackson Smith and Jigba, I think his road's going to be a little tougher. I think, uh, I think the odds will be longer on him being in consideration or, or winning rookie of the year at the end of the year. I think you'd have to have a year similar to what Garrett Wilson did. You have to catch 80, 90, 100 balls. And in this offense, and we're going to kind of roll into the second part of his question with this, with DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett and the backs out of the backfield and all those tight ends and the way that Geno is willing to spread the ball around, I think that's going to be tough for him to put up the numbers to make that kind of impact. I think off the top of my head right now, um, you know, not as great a receiver year. I think the favorites in the NFC for offensive rookie of the year right now would have to be outside of the quarterbacks, Jameer Gibbs in Detroit, Bijan Robinson in Atlanta, because those guys are going to get a ton of touches. They're going into good situations. Gibbs a much better situation. I think he could have a massive rookie year as a running back um, right from the get-go in a really exciting offense to watch and a team that people are kind of picking as their, you know, young favorite this year and, and, um, a lot of people are jumping on that Lions bandwagon. I think those guys would be the favorites right now. Um, 
I think it'd be tougher in Jigba, but Witherspoon's got a shot on the defensive side. Second part of that, how will the presence of Jackson Smith and Jigba affect target distribution to tight ends and other receivers? I feel like it's going to affect the tight end target rate more so than the receivers. I think DK and Tyler are going to get their targets. I think Gino's going to make sure of it. I think Shane Waldron's going to make sure of that. Um, Gino was much, much more consistent distributing the ball to those two guys um, than Russell was. And you can see that in their numbers, how they ended up last year. Um, they were both involved every single week. Whereas in the past, with the past quarterback, sometimes you'd lose one for a week or two. It was very frustrating to be a fantasy owner of both those guys. Um, but I think where Jackson's role is going to have him operating in the middle of the field like that, um, I think that's going to take away, especially on third downs, I could see him really being a focal point and, and that's going to affect the tight ends. I think there might be a bigger question. If that, if that comes to fruition, there might be a bigger picture question as we head into next offseason where Noah Fant, Colby Parkinson are free agents. Um, you know, are those guys going to be happy enough here knowing they're never going to be the focal point of the offense? Will there be opportunities for them to go elsewhere in free agency, catch more balls? It'll be interesting to see. But I think, I think, I think you're going to see it more so uh, taking away targets from the tight ends than Lockett or Metcalf. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. All right. To finish up, as I promised, uh, the best thing I've seen at Seahawks OTAs so far. Not just this week, but so far. This is the best moment I've seen on tape. And you see the graphic for the show at the beginning. And on the YouTube thumbnail, I got JSN up there. I didn't intend for this to be such a uh, Smith and Jigba flavored show. It just kind of worked out that way. Um, but if you're watching the YouTube, I'm going to put this, I'm going to share this and put this up on the screen so you can see it. This was video taken. Uh, it was shared on the Seahawks website. So I'm not sure who took this. Um, but this is JSN working against Jarek Reed, the sixth round pick out of New Mexico, who's a safety, but he's working also in the slot. And we don't see the very beginning of it. You'll see him going right to left on your screen. We don't see the release from the line of scrimmage, but clearly Smith got some room to operate right off the bat. And everything we hear about JSN, he's going to work in the slot. He's going to work in the slot. He's going to be a third down guy. He's more than that. Forget about the questions about his long speed. His exceptional quickness, short area quickness, and 4-5 is enough. He's Go back and watch his tape from his, from his sophomore year at Ohio State two years ago. He's not just catching slants and running. He's also beating guys down the field, and he does that in this play. And there's, there's something about this play that I just love, and when I see this from receivers, it tells me that they have unique instincts and ability to be special. If you watch what he does here, far side of the screen. So he catches the ball, and then he sees the safety. See that subtle little move there? Let me back this up and play it again. Just a subtle little move that he catches the ball over his left shoulder, 
He's tracking the ball, but he sees the free safety coming over and taking an angle. And they're not running full speed here, right? But instead of just catching the ball and protecting himself or, or continuing to run vertically, as soon as he has the ball in his hands, he makes that little inside move, almost like he's making a cut on a post pattern. So the safety overruns him, and now he's got open field to run. Watch that again. Catches the ball, tracks the ball, and it's out of the corner of his eye. He senses that safety coming. Uh, there's one more part of this video that shows you exactly what I think most people think JSN's going to do. He just settles into the zone there, takes a little five-yard uh, in-breaking route from uh, not sure who the quarterback is there. But uh, I just thought that was cool. It's it's that kind of subtlety that I love to see from receivers because it tells me they've got instincts, Right. It's not, we see guys come out every year in the draft that are strong and fast. And, you know, some people thought that's all DK Metcalf was going to be, but we've seen the instincts from him. We've seen how he can feel guys coming up on him and use his body to shield the defender in a certain way. I think JSN is going to be special. And that play in a very, very subtle way really, um, really shows it. Love that. Can't wait to see how he looks on the field. Uh, that is going to do it for me. What do I have lined up next week? Well, Kenneth Arthur of Seaside Joe is going to be joining me. We're going to not lock down a time. He is one of the most prolific Seahawk riders out there. Um, you may remember him from his days at Field Goals. He has a fascinating resume. He's done some work um, outside the football field as well. Uh, but he committed to doing a daily newsletter a couple of years ago, and he's prolific. And I want to talk to him, pick his brain a little bit about how he comes up with subject matter each and every day in such an in-depth way. So keep an eye out for that. I also just got a commitment from one of the best and biggest name beat reporters who cover the Seahawks on a daily basis. Going to be joining me in two weeks to wrap up OTAs and tell us about what he thought. Going to keep that name to myself for now. Uh, subscribe to the channel. Get notifications. Tell me what you think in the comments. Ask me more questions. Interact with me on Twitter at Seahawks Forever. I love all of it. Thank you again for listening. This is Seahawks Forever. Talk to you next time.